You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. I want to talk about friendship with you this morning. And I want to start with a letter. I don't know if this ever actually happened, but it's just fun to read. So forgive me for this, but this is an insurance claim. Someone writes, Dear Sir, I'm writing in response to your request for additional information. In block number three of the accident reporting form, I put trying to do the job alone as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain more fully, and I trust that the following details will be sufficient. I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered that I had about 500 pounds of brick left over. Rather than carry the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley which fortunately was attached to the side of the building of the sixth floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, loaded the brick into it. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tight to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of brick. You'll notice in block number 11 of the accident reporting form that I weigh 135 pounds. (laughs) Due to my surprise being jerked off the ground, so suddenly I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rather rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the fractured skull and broken collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I'd regained my presence of mind, and I was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground, and the bottom broke out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in the accident reporting form, block number 11. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounted for the two fractured ankles and the lacerations on my legs and lower body. The encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell onto the pile of bricks. Unfortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. Sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks in pain, unable to stand, and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind, and I let go of the rope. (laughs) The dangers of trying to do the job alone. Last month, there was an article in the BBC about Facebook. The question the writer raises, can Facebook make you sad? It was the title of the, argument, of the article. And their answer is yes. They looked at research done at the University of Michigan, University of Leuven in Belgium. These teams found that the more you and I spend on Facebook, the more our levels of satisfaction begin to decline. We get sadder. We feel lonelier. Now, I, I like uh, technology, but, and no one's really sure exactly what that correlation might be caused by, but it seems to be there. Facebook, you're 10 years old now. Birthday was last month. We have 1.3 billion users, half of whom will choose to log in every day and spend an average of 18 minutes networking and connecting. But you know what? We've never been more connected in the history of, of mankind, and we've never been lonelier without friends. I don't know if you've seen this, but the, the Broadway musical Spamalot is in town uh, right now. And there's a great song in Spamalot called I'm All Alone. It's sung by King Arthur, 
dark stage, big spotlight, and he's singing, I'm all alone, all by myself, there's no one here beside me. Except there is somebody there beside him. It's his squire, Patsy, who's carrying all of his gear and who's not quite sure why King Arthur is singing the song. But he goes on, King Arthur, I'm all alone, very dramatically, quite all alone. No one to comfort me or guide me. Why is there no one here with me on the long and winding road to lift my heavy load? If there were someone here with me, how happy I would be. But I'm all alone, quite all alone. And then Patsy begins to sing backup vocals. He's all alone. And and then Arthur says, all by myself. And Patsy says, except for me. And then pretty soon the knights of the round table start coming out on the stage. And it's a just huge choir of singing knights and a big dance number. And they're all singing now. We're all alone. Yes, all alone. Each one of us is all alone. So what are we to do in order to get through? We must be lonely side by side. It's a perfect way to hide. We're all alone. And I, you know what? It, that's our song. It feels that way. I'll be in an airport later on tonight, and I'll be surrounded by people, but you've been in airports before, and you know what it feels like? I'm all alone. And yet, perhaps the simplest and most profound thing that Jesus ever said to his followers is, you are my friends. Look around the room. Jesus invites us into friendship. You're my friends. To say that is to say, first of all, that you're my friend. Jesus says that to you. Jesus is God saying to you, you're my friend. Do you believe that? And then Jesus is God looking at a room full of people saying, you're my friends. Let me introduce you to your friends. And that's who we are. But the question is, how do we get to the kind of friendship that Jesus is talking about and that the earlier followers of Jesus demonstrated in their lives? Because I want to tell you, it's not about connection. It's not about just being with people or being beside people. It's about being alive together as a community of friends. How do we get that? How do we experience that? Well, our text is going to lead us in. So would you open up your Bible to Romans chapter 16, verse 16. If you didn't bring one, no problem. Grab the black book and the pew rack in front of you and open to page 925. There you're going to see the last chapter of the great letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 16, verse 16. And if you're able, would you stand? Let's read God's word aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading his holy word. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Before you sit down, why don't you plant a big juicy one on someone's cheek? I'm just just kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. Sit down, sit down, sit down. Look at their making out in the balcony. Look at that. How long have you been married? I saw that. No, you know, it's a different culture. In some cultures, they do. They greet each other with kisses, and it's wonderful. But we, I know we don't do that, these northern European cultures here. Uh, not all of us, by the way. Um, some of us do. But here's the question. Where would you and I get the kind of intimacy that a kiss like this would make sense in, in any culture? Right? Because it's not about the kiss. 
It's about the intimacy that made the kiss real, authentic. And where, and where would that intimacy come from? Well, this text is going to lead us. I mean, in, in, in fact, five times in the New Testament, what we call the holy kiss or the kiss of peace is referred to. It's always at the end of a letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, we read, Paul says, greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. Peter also, at the end of his first epistle in chapter 5, verse 14, says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Uh, Peace to all you who are in Christ. And we know that this isn't just like super spiritual people talking. This, This kiss actually happened. This was practiced in the first century. And we have a lot of extra biblical uh, um, witness to that practice. For example, in the second century, Justin Martyr tries to explain this practice to his readers. And he, and he says, he's, he's talking about the worship um, liturgy as they gather in these little house churches. And he says, on finishing the prayers, we greet each other with a kiss. Now, that's interesting. Not just that they did it, but where they did it, they did it in a worship service as they were worshiping Jesus Christ at the climax of the service. The word had been read, explained, and they prayed. And then in the sacred moment, the kiss. Everybody would turn to one another. And you know, it's, it's, it, it's, this is a, a very different kind of a kiss. It's true that in that culture, people would kiss, but this is not the superficial kiss of hospitality when someone comes over for a meal. It's not the erotic kiss of hot, romantic love. This is a, a family kiss. This is a kiss that says, we have a new family and that we're friends here, that we're real friends, there's, that there's an intimacy in our relationships with one another. Do you remember your first kiss? I remember mine, and uh, that means I'm going to tell you about it. I actually remember twice, (laughs) two first kisses. The first one was in uh, first grade on the playground. I think it had something to do with a dare, and it was a horrible experience. It was a snotty, kind of messy thing. And, uh, oh, the other one, I'll never forget, kissing my wife, Anne, for the first time. We were working together at a, uh, it was a conference in Rhode Island, Narragansett, Rhode Island. And after the meetings were over, we took a walk along the seawall. And there in the dark, there was a, I had all the courage. And uh, I grabbed her and kissed her. And uh, it was awesome. <laughs> um, and, and still is, by the way. The, the, but here's, here's here, ladies, I want you to hear this, because this was a classy move. It's like she couldn't have planned this. She didn't know it was going to happen, but she, her reaction was the best. After she kissed me, she looked me in the eye, and she said, George, I don't want to kiss many men. And I, you know, what's she saying to me? She's saying, buddy, you better make this one count. <laughs> this kiss had better mean something. This kiss had better be about your intention in this relationship. And I was terrified. Because <laughs> I didn't know I could make it count. But she had me on the hook. And you see, the, the, the intimacy doesn't come from the kiss. The intimacy comes from the relationship that makes the kiss real. So the question here is, where do we find a relationship like that? Why, why would you expect to find that from religious people who read a Bible or from an apostle who's urging this kind of intimacy throughout all the congregations where Jesus is worshipped? Well, I'd like to make three quick observations uh, on the passage. And the first one is this, that these people are uncommon friends. That is to say, these are people you wouldn't expect to find together anywhere else in Rome. They're uncommon friends. Now, I can tell you that 
with a lot of confidence, not from verse 16, but from reading the paragraph that precedes it, because here, Paul's actually greeting the people that he asks to greet one another. There's a whole list of people. Uh, There are 26 people, three house churches, two families. Paul's never been to Rome, as far as we know, but he seems to know a lot of people there, and he names them. And this is a kind of a treasure trove. It's it's like an archaeological discovery into the sociology of the early church. These names, as you look at them and study them, give you a picture of the incredible diversity in these house churches. These are people that just don't seem to belong together. These are people, for example, that are of different ethnicities. Phoebe is Greek, Mary is is Jewish. These are people of different socioeconomic backgrounds or classes. Priscilla and Aquila are wealthy. And then there are a whole lot of slaves and freed slaves that are here uh, in the list. This is interesting. Uh, Hermes is the most common slave name in Rome at that time. Hermes is mentioned. There's also another gentleman named Phlegon, which was the most common name we know of at that day for dogs. Thanks, Mom and Dad, you know, for that honor. Hopefully no one, we don't have any flagons here today. <laughs> the flagons be God, bygones. Uh, the, the, there are nine women, and you know what? There are leaders in the church. That's one of the great things about Romans 16. Phoebe is a deacon or a minister. Junia is an apostle. Uh, these are women who are leading because of Jesus Christ in this community. There are married, there are singles, there are people who are old and who are young. Paul says to Rufus, hey, greet your mom. She's like my mom too. There's a new family here. These are brothers and sisters who only belong together because they belong to Jesus Christ. And so the question is, who do you greet? And is it possible that you and I are a little bit lonelier than we need to be because we're overlooking the people that are right in front of us in our pursuit of people who are just like us? Is that possible? Play that out all the way to the very end. If you actually did find someone who is exactly like you, like the same skin color, the same socioeconomic background, the same age, the same marital status, the same interests. If you found a person who was the same in every way, guess what? They'd be just like you. And you'd be as lonely at the end as you were when you began because it'd just be you that you were with. And they weren't that way. They were wonderfully rich in their diversity. They were with the people that God had given, not the people that they had chosen. It's uncommon. And, you know, so sometimes we treat our friends like we treat our, our... I wish we would treat our friends like we treat our food. We, we, we know that we're not supposed to just eat the sugar. We know we're supposed to eat some of the stuff that, frankly, we don't always like, you know, the grains or, or, or the fruits. And over time, we end up realizing that, wow, actually the grains and the fruits are tastier than the sugar. And so the diversity of our diet should be reflected, I think, in the diversity of our relationships, it's actually more, not less, when we're with people that are not like us. Who do you greet? Have you given up on anybody? Have you given up on a friendship? Because the culture of society says, no, 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 you shouldn't be friends with that person. You can't be friends with that person. Or because of your own personal experience. Because you have a track record. And there may be a string of bodies in your past. And you go, oh, yeah, I don't really talk to that sister anymore. Or that cousin has kind of cut me out of their life. Or uh, my old friend, well, he was my friend. I can't really say he is my friend because I haven't talked to him in 15 years. Um, That co-worker who had their hand in the till, that contract that wasn't completed. You know, we don't really talk to that person anymore. And the good news of this text is that there's something uncommon going on that makes friendship possible when the world would say it's impossible. That's the beauty 
They're uncommon friendships. Let me move on. The second thing I want to notice here is that they share a common life together as friends. These people whom Paul greets share a common life as friends. These people greet one another with this holy kiss. They live life together. There's an experience that they share. But after all, this is one of the one another passages. And if you're new, just visiting, we've been looking for weeks at the one another passages of the Bible. And it's always something you can't do alone. You have to have somebody else to do it with. Then, of course, you can't kiss somebody without having another person, right? That's fairly obvious. But here's the thing. This is kind of the capstone. This is kind of the climax of the one another passages. It always comes at the end of the letter, and it's as though it binds up all the other one another's. It's like it's a sacrament of togetherness. It's just a sign or a symbol that comes because of the one another life that you've been living. It's interesting when we look at the history of the kiss. You know, there's, we believe there's probably only one church in India that has continuously practiced the one another uh, kissing. But... Um, Everywhere else, it stops being practiced. Somewhere around 4th, 6th, 7th century. Um, churches don't do it anymore. A scholar by the name of Eleanor Crider did an interesting study, and, and, and many people concur with her. She's trying to figure out what happened to the kiss for Christians. Where'd it go? And her conclusion is that the kiss falls out of practice when Christians become spectators. I mean, in the early church, everybody's meeting in these little spaces, cramming these little Roman homes, and they get to know each other, and they're living life together, not just in the Rome, but through the week. And then the church starts to grow, and gets the approval of Constantine, they can own property, big lecture halls, large gatherings, it becomes less personal, and people aren't really practicing the one another's because, frankly, they don't know one another that well, and there isn't real intimacy. And the priests pick up on this, you have the elevation of the clergy above the body of Christ, and pretty soon the clergy are starting to perform the one another's, almost like it's a performance, and the congregation is just sitting there going, wow, that looks like real intimacy, I wonder what that would look like in my life, never mind. The priests are kissing each other up front. The priests are kissing at one age religious objects, a plank or a chalice. And then sometimes the congregation will kiss that same object, but it's not the same, is it? Because the one another's are gone. But, but to think of, we've, we've talked about eight one another's, and there are many more. Let me just refresh your memory. Some of the ones actually we haven't talked about here belong to one another. These are all in the New Testament. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Serve one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, live in peace with one another, carry one another's burdens, be kind to one another, speak truthfully to one another, offer hospitality to one another. If you start practicing these things with real people in a circle of faith, you know what? You'll have real intimacy. You will. There was an ancient writer named Minicius Felix who wrote, and he's, he's explaining the church to its, uh, to its audience in the, in, in the early days. And he said this, we do not talk about great things, we live them. See, we, we do, we, we do, our faith is not a sort of, it's not a creed, it's a life. We don't talk about great things. We live them. And then he says, the beauty of life reflected in our friendships causes strangers to join the ranks. I tell you, when the people around you see you participating 
in a loving circle of friends, they'll want to be a part of that circle because we are hungry for intimacy. These are uncommon friendships. They share a common life as friends. And the third observation is they find intimacy in a a common friend. One common friend is the source of their intimacy. And of course, that's Jesus. I already told you about the speculations historians have engaged in when they're trying to figure out where did the kiss go. But where did the kiss come from is another interesting scholarly question. There's really no consensus. But let me tell you what I think. Let me ask you. You can be my focus group or my, my, my theory. When you think about Jesus and kiss, what comes to mind next? Jesus, kiss, Judas. Very good. The only time scripture tells us Jesus kisses anybody, it's Judas. Just think about that for a second. That he's the one. The sacred texts capture the beloved one who's kissed the betrayer. Where did did the kiss come from? Well, I think, some others as well, that it came from Jesus. Jesus had the practice of kissing his followers. I mean, think of what Judas would have had to do to betray Jesus. He he went to some authorities and he had to come up with a plan. He had to know Jesus in some predictable way could be captured somewhere. And so if you're thinking, what does Jesus always do? What, what is Jesus sort of reliably going to be doing on a certain night at a certain time? And he knew, I think, Judas, that Jesus always, particularly after a meal, he would gather his friends around a meal. He would pray together. And then after the prayer, Jesus would get up and, and he would look each person, I think male or female, in the face and he would kiss them. And Judas knows it. Judas knows that if he leaves that dinner before Jesus kisses him, that when he comes back, the first thing Jesus will want to do is kiss Judas on the lips. And that's why Judas can say to the authorities, arrest the one I kiss. And Jesus does. Jesus is the kiss of heaven, stooping so low to the the depths of the cross itself in order to kiss his beloved creation to kiss you. And now we see what it is that makes the kiss holy. It's not our righteousness. It's not our greatness. It's not our ability. It's, not, it's Jesus that makes the kiss holy. When your kiss to somebody else comes from having been kissed by the Son of God, there is the possibility of intimacy where none had been possible prior. And this is why Cyril of Jerusalem in the 4th century says this. This is 4th century. You must not suppose that this kiss, he's explaining the holy kiss, that this kiss is the kiss customarily exchanged in the street by ordinary friends. Though this kiss is different, effecting as it does a commingling of souls and mutually pledged, that's the one another, unreserved forgiveness. This is still Cyril. He says, the kiss, then, is a sign of true union of hearts, banishing every grudge. The kiss, then, is a reconciliation. And therefore, holy. When God kisses you, 
you're taken into his soul and reconciled to God. And when we've been kissed by God, we learn to take others who are not like us, others. Where intimacy even has failed into our souls. Now, one other thing I want to say about this, and that is, remember we're talking about a new family, and with family intimacy will always come family dysfunction. Inside the church or outside of the church? Whenever there's a family, there's dysfunction. Do I have anybody in families here? Right? Come on, you guys. And, and that's true in the church. There's always dysfunction. The family is the place where I can become who I'm meant to be or it's supposed to be. The family is supposed to be the place that you know, no matter how ugly my behavior has been, no matter how deep my failure has been, I'm always loved. I'm completely accepted. And this is that kind of family. But let's be honest, as human beings, we fail. We disappoint each other. Our human families, we don't even know if we'll be loved in that way. Will I? Will, will you love me if I don't make the grade? If I don't get the grades? If I don't make you proud? If I come home, home drunk? Will you love me still? It's because of the kiss of Jesus Christ. It's because of the cross of Jesus Christ and the way that God has kissed creation that intimacy is possible even in the midst of brokenness. That's the miracle of Jesus. Two weeks ago, somebody told me about a conversation they had in their small group. A couple had brought um, pornography, the problem of pornography, to this small group. The wife had caught the husband and the husband had confessed to her and they'd taken it to their small group because they didn't know what else to do. And you know what? Nine times out of ten, most people would reject folks like that. And, but you know what the small group did? There was, no, there was no judgment. There was no criticism. There was no lecture. There was love. There was grace. They kissed this man. They kissed this woman with the kiss of Jesus, metaphorically. You know, that's, that's why you need to be in a small group. To do that and have that done for you. That's why. And I, and I want us to be a church. I mean, just imagine if we, if we did this. What would it look like if, let's say, our international students, we have visiting scholars who are part of our community. And you know what? Many of them are different ethnicities than you and I are. And we stumble over ourselves with that. That's hard for us. But what if, having been kissed by Jesus, they kiss us anyways and say, it's okay. You know, what about our youth who've been pushed to the margin, our children? Uh, we have a lost generation in, in society today. But if we say, as adults, we love you and we want to include you in our family because Jesus has kissed us, we kiss you. What if, it, when we think about people here who are, have been divorced or are going through a divorce or are trying to make their marriage work and everyone says, you should be divorced, what does it mean to come around people like that and, and having been kissed by Jesus, offer the kiss of the cross to bring healing into those people's lives or, or singles or other people who don't fit the mold here in Seattle because they're not married and they don't have you know the 2.5 kids picket fence and the half a dog or whatever. In Seattle, it's 1.5 dogs. Uh, couldn't we be a community where you could find real intimacy, people to journey with you, to sustain you in the commitment that you made to Jesus Christ? Because of how we've been kissed. One writer said these followers of Jesus were establishing a new sociological reality. And they were. what well, Jesus was. And Jesus still is. Jesus says, you are my friends. You are my friends. Join a small group. 
And then if you're in a, a group, ask yourselves, how do we relate as friends? Go see Sounders games together, go skiing together, walk the dogs together, eat meals together, take the casserole over the shut-in together, do it together. Let Jesus befriend you. It's not a one-time decision that you just make 30 years ago and then coast. It's a moment by moment. Let Jesus be your friend. He kisses you every morning. And then let his kiss renew friendship. Well, I began with a letter about the dangers of being alone. I want to close with a letter, too. This is a, this is a letter about the joys of being with friends. This is a letter I received this week from a friend in He said this, many years ago, I became friends with Greg, a UW classmate. In those college years, we did what most college guys do, talked about women, enthusiastically followed Husky sports, found innumerable ways to entertain ourselves, and spent more time talking about women. (laughs) Early on, I shared Christ with Greg. I remember him listening respectfully, but responding with something like, thanks, David, but it's not for me. Greg and I maintained our close friendship over the decades that followed. We were at each other's weddings. We traveled together. We joined the same club. We shared with each other the travails and victories of parenting. At various intervals, I would bring up the joy and certainty of being a follower of Christ. Some form of the same answer always followed. Thanks, but it's not for me. Oh, how I wanted him to know what I knew. Greg contracted cancer a few years ago. He fought valiantly and with extraordinary enthusiasm through the multitude of ups and downs he encountered as one trying to beat that insidious disease. One day he called me at work to share two items of news. The first was that recent test results were not good and his time may now be measured in months. The second was that he had come to faith in Christ. I was so conflicted with sorrow and joy battling each other for a foothold of my heart. Visits with Greg took on new meaning. We conversed about Jesus. We prayed together. We talked about his pending death and graduation to heaven. As his passing drew closer to Greg's Uh, As his passing drew closer, Greg's energy and vibrancy waned, but never his enthusiasm or his trust in Christ. He knew his destination. During one of my last visits with Greg, he struggled mightily to speak, his voice but a whisper. But he wanted me to know that he had a few things that he wanted to share with me. One by one, he went down what I surmised to be a mental checklist of what was most important. He shared some heartfelt things about his wife, his children, his brothers. He had me retrieve a couple of treasured keepsakes, and he connected a life lesson with each. He then had me read scripture and pray. I thought our visit was finished. He was exhausted, satisfied, strangely content, but exhausted. I stood to say goodbye and exit. He weakly held up one hand and motioned for me to come closer. I stood with my legs touching the side of his hospital bed. He motioned me closer. I bent over so my face was close to his. He paused looked at me for what seemed like a long while, and then said, I love you. He then struggled to lift his head and kiss me on the cheek. In that moment, with that one expression, he said more to me about Jesus than I ever shared with him. We were one in Christ, brothers united now and united forever. I think I experienced a holy kiss. My brother in Christ now resides with his creator and savior. I see him no more, but I shall see him again. His cheek awaits me. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for this good word. It's such good news. We need to know your love for us. And we need to know that you've given us friends for the journey.
Thank you for this kiss. May we open our arms and hearts wide to one another and exchange it in the most authentic of ways. We need your Spirit's help with that this week. And we trust that we received it. Send us forth from this place as a community of friends. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.